I believe we are picking up at the very, very bottom line of page 40, if I'm correct here. Uh, I'm talking about the government of the local church. Uh, we finished up our various duties towards each other as members. Uh, one of the larger ones is mutual discipline, uh, which includes not not just the exclusion of persons, but this ongoing uh, mutual sharpening of each other uh, to, you know, urge each other on to sanctification. And that's, that's really the discipline uh, that we supply for each other. And uh, so hopefully we don't think of that as a negative thing, uh, uh, but, but as something that's quite positive and a, a dominant feature of the New Testament. But let's move in here to the governing government of the church, who, who rules the church, who runs the church. Actually got a whole class on this at the seminary, and so we're not going to go into as much detail as we could. Uh, just right up front, just to mention that there's a number of ecclesiastical government types. Uh, we are not, in, in Baptist life, we're not hierarchical or monarchic, such as papalism. So we've got a, a giant uh, hierarchy with the Pope at the top, and then various layers of authority, uh, uh, bishops, archbishops, and, and, and the like. Uh, nor are we oligarchic. Uh, which is uh, what I'm going to call Episcopalianism, uh, which does not have technically a single head, uh, rather multiple, uh, multiple heads at the top. Uh, uh, again, often called archbishops. Sometimes think of the Archbishop of Canterbury as the uh, leader of the Anglican communion. Uh, but that's not actually true. He has no more authority or power than anyone. He just happens to, uh, be in charge of a rather influential one there in England. Nor are we Presbyterian per se. Um, a Presbyterian simply means elder ruled. Uh, so pres- a presbyter is simply a, an elder. Uh, it's a Greek word. It simply means elder. El- if we could put it elderian, you know, elder ruled. Um, we're getting closer with that. Um, we do see that there's a measure of elder participation in the government, uh, but we are not a pure elder-led arrangement, nor are we a pure congregational uh, approach. So we're, we're not talking about a pure democracy. Uh, rather, we're going to sort of uh, try and settle into this idea of elder-led congregationalism as the most biblical approach uh, to church government. And so by defining us that way, we're not pure democracy nor elder rule. On the other, we're trying to fit in in somewhere in between. We're also rejecting here board-led congregationalism. You know, there's a sense in which I've never seen an academic or scholarly defense of board-led congregationalism. But sadly, it is a form of government that is somewhat common in independent Baptist life. Uh, and that's often because the, the, the pastoral leadership proved inept in some way, whether, whether there's a high turnover rate, uh, whether, you know, the, uh, the, uh, pastor took too much authority upon himself and it was resented or oppositely just didn't take enough authority upon himself. And so what ends up happening is the void is filled uh, by deacons. Deacons are not really part of the authority structure of the church. Uh, That's not to say that deacons aren't an important part of the church, uh, but they're not part of the authority structure of the church. Rather, deacons are helpers of pastors, really, is what, what they are. And uh, so they, they don't technically have an intrinsic authority, authoritative role. Now, they can be delegated places of authority, and we're going to talk about the delegation of authority tonight. But technically, deacons are not supposed to be uh, part of the authority structure of the church. But very often, uh, they function this way uh, for pragmatic reasons or practical reasons. So congregationalism, I say, is that form of polity in which final authority rests in the collective will of the whole gathered local assembly alone. 
There's basically two prongs of our definition here. Primarily, it means that the whole congregation, not merely the officers, are charged with governing the local church. And so we're going to talk about that under the heading of the congregational principle. It also means that congregational churches are autonomous or independent in nature. Individual assemblies answer to no norming authority external to itself. Now, again, there's there's abuses of independent autonomy uh, in, in local churches, but that doesn't destroy the principle, okay? And I think we can establish both these principles, the congregational principle and the principle of, of autonomy from the scriptures, and that's what we're going to attempt to do here on uh, tonight. Okay, we'll start here with the congregational principle. And I want to start with what it's not and then go on to what it is. Uh, the congregational principle does not mean that Christ is not the over-shepherd, the chief shepherd of the church. Uh, that is certainly the case, um, and it's not as though we can somehow override what God has said. Uh, uh, at the same time, in terms of human authority, it is the collective of the church that that, that carries the authority of the church. Secondly, the regulative role of Scripture cannot be discarded. So the congregation can't decide to do something other than what Scripture tells it to do. Now, there are certain times where the congregation can choose between options. But one of the options is not to do something that the, con- that the Bible says you can't do. Okay, So, uh, so congregationalism does not mean uh, that the congregation is more authoritative than the Bible itself. It doesn't mean, oppositely, that every decision made in the church must be made democratically. Now, in smaller churches, sometimes a little bit more, uh, just because there's uh, perhaps not as many decisions, or perhaps the uh, the uh, you know when we're talking about financial decisions, the uh, the money is very dear, and so you know everybody wants to have a voice in that. But most churches recognize that that's it's it's really impractical. Uh, for uh, the congregation to weigh in on every single possible decision uh, that a church might make. And uh, churches are certainly advised to delegate some of that authority. You know, say, hey, we're going to delegate this guy to be in charge of the cleaning of the church, and he's got a budget. You know, you can use whatever. You can use Simple Green, or you can use whatever it is that you happen to to like. Uh, we're not going to we're not going to weigh in as a church on minutia, uh, so that the congregation can delegate. Uh, but uh, when it comes down to it, uh, the church can at any point say, you know, we want to weigh in on this decision and, and do so. It doesn't mean either that duly appointed elders of the assembly have no authority to lead. And that's, that's perhaps part of the tension of congregationalism. Where, where does the congregational authority end and the authority of the pastor begin, okay? And and quite frankly, not every church is going to draw that line identically, okay? Nor do I think they have to. At the same time, we recognize that within congregational authority, there are officers that have been appointed by the church, and once appointed by the church, those, those elders have intrinsic authority that is intrinsic to the office, okay? So the pastor is is appointed by the church and then he makes decisions or the 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 collective of elders make decisions about the spiritual oversight of the church you know we're going to have a sermon series on x or y i'm going to preach through this book and the congregation generally doesn't weigh in on those matters and say no we we don't want to hear a sermon on the book of john We, we want to hear something else because you are appointing yeah, and the church has this responsibility, congregational, to appoint its leaders, but it appoints those leaders to positions that have intrinsic authority. Now, they retain the authority to take away that position from the man, or, or the man away from the position, but they don't have the authority to micromanage his responsibilities as a pastor. Okay. So what is the congregational principle then? Well, it means that the final human authority, and again, we, we qualify that. It's, it's you know, the, the 
God still rules, the Bible still rules, but the final human authority in the life of the church rests in the whole gathered assembly of the local church. Okay? So what this means is uh, that the church appoints men to offices with intrinsic authority, understanding that while a church cannot legitimately diminish the authority of the office, she does retain the right to withdraw her appointments to that office. Okay, so, you know, a, a church can't appoint a pastor to his his office and then say, you, you're our shepherd, but you may not shepherd us, or we'll, you'll shepherd us the way we tell you to, okay? Uh, uh, no more than we can elect a president in November uh, of election year with the stipulation that he may not preside, okay? You know, we recognize that we have a, a, a democratic republic, right? So we appoint people, we elect people to offices, and they rule, okay? So it's it's a it's a it's a democratic republic, uh, and uh, with with officers that we have in our the good old U.S. of A. And we have something at least somewhat similar in the life of the church. Um. Uh, so that so the church can appoint men to offices and delegate to her officers or other named representatives some of the church's authority. And we're going to talk about how much of that they can do. You know, there's, you know, the church can grant to a pastor or deacons or the Sunday school superintendent or the music director or whatever, some sort of a discretionary budget, say, you know, you know, spend wisely. We're entrusting this to you. Uh, probably have to have some sort of reporting, but we don't have to, we don't have to micromanage the whole thing. And they can rescind this authority at any time as well. Okay. And, and they should delegate such authority for the sake of simplicity in the life of the church. Church really shouldn't be engaged in making minutiae decisions here. But it does not allow the church ever to delegate, even to her own officers, responsibilities that, if lost, would prevent that church from being called congregational. In other words, you cannot congregationally delegate away congregationalism. Okay. Specifically, there are two matters that are, that are consistently listed in the scriptures as matters that the congregation can't give up. One is membership matters, that is bringing people into membership and disciplining those within the membership, so membership matters, and then the selection of its officers. So if you if you give up those, you no longer are a congregational church. Uh, you've actually ceded the authority of the congregation to other sources and and in theory can't get it back at that point because you've given it away, okay? Uh, so, so there are certain things that the congregation cannot give up and remain a congregational church. Okay. See, so if we can't defend this idea, then we'll raise some objections, common objections to congregationalism. See if we can't answer some of those. So the congregational principle dis, uh, defended. Letter A here, the New Testament was written, firstly, in large part to churches, that is, groups of saints, not to a hierarchical body of church leaders. In fact, it's it's rather stunning as you work your way through the New Testament that the books are are, are almost deliberate in omitting at times the pastor's name. You know, it, it it's it says, you know, Paul an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to the saints at Corinth or Ephesus or wherever the case may be. Now, usually the uh, the pastor ends up with some sort of mention, but sometimes it's not until the very end of the book, okay? The, the letters are written to congregations because there's an understanding that the congregation is the the the, uh, the decision-making body for the church. Among other grammatical constructions, there are at least 55 one another or each other references in the epistles, 46 that are positive and nine that are negative. And these demonstrate that the church, as a totality of its individual members, is responsible for policing its own conduct and program. Okay, uh, so that the, the, the church makes these decisions, uh, not the pastors on behalf of the church. The church is involved in this. 
Secondly, we find that the church has a collective responsibility to guard the faith. First uh, Peter 3.15, the church of the living God is the pillar and foundation of the truth. The whole thing. Okay? Not just its pastors. Now, certainly pastors should take the lead in this. There's no question about that. At the same time, it's not just the responsibility of the pastors to guard the faith, but it's the whole church that's supposed to weigh in on that. Uh, Jude 3, contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to all the saints. Okay, so, so the saints have a, the whole, the whole collective of saints, all believers have a responsibility to collectively, uh, define and, and, uh, defend, uh, this faith. Church also has a collective responsibility to elect its own officers. Uh, whether those be pastors, deacons, also messengers and missionaries along the way as well. Uh, again, we're going to spend some time talking about these specific offices, but now, for now, we're just trying to establish that the church is charged with choosing them. Uh, the, uh, they're not, you know, elders do not create a self-perpetuating board uh, that bypasses congregational authority. Rather, pastors and elders are selected by congregations. Which is why we find, for instance, in Titus and Timothy, First uh, Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, the qualifications uh, for elders are listed. Verse 15 says, so that the people might know how to properly conduct themselves in the church. Okay. And so you know, all these, all these, you know, the pastor has to have these qualities and, 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 and features. And the reason that they're given to the whole church is because the whole church is involved then in the selection process and maintaining order within the life of the church. Uh, now, here we say, uh, you, you see uh, Acts 1423, and you say, well, that doesn't seem to say what you're saying here. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every city. Well, it sounds like Paul and Barnabas are appointing the elders. It doesn't sound like there's any congregational involvement. At first blush, that may seem to be the case. But I think we can actually make the case uh, that this is the case. We, if we look closely, it appears that this is no fiat appointment. Instead, Paul and Barnabas were overseeing the appointment and installing elders in the church. The term here is used is kerotaneo. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but keros actually means to hand appoint, appoint by hand. In fact, some would suggest here appoint by the raising of the hand, that perhaps there was actually a congregational vote raising of the hand. Uh, but, uh, but, and that's exactly how the, the term is used in Second Corinthians chapter 8, uh, to select by vote. In fact, the etymology of the term might possibly supply a window into the way they were doing it. And the, the, the use of this word hand as part of the term may indicate selection by a hand vote, that they would raise their hands and collectively lay their hand upon uh, the individual. Okay, And if we look in the Didache, you say, what's the Didache? Well, it's a, it's a very, 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 very early polity manual for the life of the church, written possibly as, as early as the end of the first century, uh, probably second century. Uh, but possibly as early as the end of the first century. And we find here uh, some details laid out at the, the early church, probably second generation church, how they were going about doing this. And they, you, can, we, you find there that they chose their bishops congregationally from among themselves. Okay, so this was a very common practice, and we can see it demonstrated very early in the history of the church. We also see that deacons are chosen by the whole congregation. So Acts 6, you know, this is this whole situation where the, uh, the apostles were, you know, overwhelmed with the, uh, the amount of work that they had to do in governing the church there in, in Jerusalem. And uh, they were particularly overwhelmed by the responsibility of taking care of the widows. Uh, and not that this was a bad work, it's a very important work, uh, but they didn't have enough hours in the day to do that and prepare for, you know, the Sunday sermon. And so they appointed these men, these seven men, uh, these, uh, these first deacons, uh, and uh, appointed them over this job, taking care of the widows so that 
uh, the, uh, the, the, the apostles could give themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. Okay. But how did they do it? Well, the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples. So they bring everybody together and says, brethren, select from among yourselves seven men whom we may put in charge of the task. Okay. So, so there you see that the elder led congregationalism congregation, you select these people and we will appoint them to the task. And we find that the statement found approval with the whole congregation. So the whole congregation is involved here in the selection of the first deacons. Now, how exactly they went about it is not clear. Uh, we don't have details. Did they, did they have some sort of a nominating committee? I, it, it's hard to know how that, how that happened. Uh, but the congregation worked together to make these appointments of seven people. And then the, op, the, the, the apostles then appointed them to their task. This is true of missionaries as well. Uh, while the church at Antioch were ministering to the Lord and fasting, all of them together, the Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them to. So the first missionary journey. And so when they had all fasted and prayed and laid their hands upon them, they sent them away. Okay, so the whole church uh, was, was tasked with the sending out of this first missionary team. Second uh, Corinthians 8, we find that Titus was sent on his mission, not only by Paul here, but Titus was appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work. So Titus travels with Paul on, I believe that's his second missionary journey here. Um, and so Titus is with Paul for a year and a half. How did he get to this place? Did Paul just decide he's coming along? Well, no, the the, the churches appointed him to travel with them, but part of Paul's missionary team. This gracious work. Also, uh, the congregation would choose other more ad hoc messengers and legates. Sometimes we have these in the life of the church. You know, some, you know, for instance, there's an ordination council, and oftentimes what is what happens is the elders of the church are invited along with uh, with with, with the uh, additional people. So oftentimes a, a pastor will either bring another elder or sometimes a young man who is aspiring to ministry. And, uh, you know, you get into the, into the, into the ordination meeting and they'll say, Hey, uh, it, you know, you go call roll Ken Brown and he, he'd answer uh, here plus one or plus two. Okay. And so how, how were those people decided? Well, it appears that uh, by congregational vote, the church at Jerusalem sent off Barnabas to Antioch. Uh, Paul and Barnabas passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders and reported all that God had done with them. So the, uh, uh, so that as missionaries, they gave reports to the whole church, which is a pattern that we still have today. The apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. And you can see that the purpose here was to deliver the findings of the Jerusalem council. Remember, that was the question as to whether they have to uh, to observe the Jewish ritual uh, found in the Old Testament. And so the, there was a big powwow in Jerusalem, and these findings were made, and then these, these individuals were sent out by the church to report these findings. First uh, Corinthians 16.3, in this case, it's, it's a, a, an appointment by the church for someone to carry money. Uh, to the Jerusalem church that was then experiencing famine. So when I arrive, Paul says, whomever you appoint, you all, it's plural, I will send that person with letters to, and to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Okay. So, uh, so here's a, not, not an officer of the church, but sort of an ad hoc responsibility, a messenger for the church, uh, as they brought this gift to Jerusalem. Okay, so they have this responsibility to name their elders and uh, other uh, other uh, uh, appointees, messengers 
uh, as they as they have need to do so, official and unofficial. They also had the responsibility to collectively receive their members. Uh, remember that this this incident here in Acts chapter ten, um, and so this or this is rather a, a rather a fascinating story here. Uh, Peter goes down to uh, over to the Mediterranean, and there he uh, encounters Cornelius and his family. He and his family convert. And this was rather a startling thing. This is the first time a full Gentile individual and family were brought into the church. And so God graciously uh, uh, causes them to uh, exhibit, uh, you know, supernatural phenomenon, probably speaking in tongues like they had at the beginning of Pentecost. And so at this point, the uh, the observers here were, uh, convinced that in fact this was a work of God since they were doing the same thing that had happened on Pentecost and their conclusion then surely no one can refuse the the water for those to be baptized who received the Holy Spirit just as we can he and so Peter asks this question for everybody standing around now does anybody have an objection here to baptizing these people and they all give their collective support so they baptize Cornelius and his family uh, Romans 14.1, accept the one who is weak in the faith, not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions here. So this you plural again is used here. You accept the one. And there's some some debate as to whether this is just a sort of an unofficial, you know, an informal acceptance. You know, yeah, I, you know, I, you know, I accept you just the way you are, but it, it's more you you formally accept the person into the assembly, recognizing that there might be still raw edges and and stuff that person needs to work on. We all have that, right? In terms of their sanctification, so you bring them in not for the purpose of you know badgering that person, but rather so that in the company of the saints you can. You can actually work off some of those rough edges and, and see him grow in, life, in, in his likeness to Jesus Christ. But you have to accept them. And so I think this is an accepting into membership, so a collective uh, acceptance of these individuals. So they received members collectively. And then also, as necessary, uh, were involved in the discipline and exclusion of members as well, right? If he refuses to listen to them, we looked at this last week, tell it to the whole church. This is after you went privately, and then with a committee. Now it's the whole church gets involved. And if he refuses to listen to the whole church, then the whole church is to exclude that person. Okay, So the uh, the whole church is involved in bringing members in and also as necessary to excluding them. Romans 16, I urge you, brethren, plural, Keep your eye on those who call dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. First Corinthians 5, this is one we looked at last week as well. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord, hand this man over to Satan. Well, why do we have to be assembled? Well, because the, the officers of the church are not authorized to just to go rogue and do this on their own and exclude someone from the church. Uh, on their own authority. They had to wait until everybody would come together. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, that's when you can make this decision that somebody needs to be removed from el- from the, from the, uh, from the membership. Okay. In fact, it's called here the judgment of the majority. Okay. Uh, which suggests here that, uh, there could be a, you know, a, a democratic style vote. Uh, where there's a large number of votes cast and you, you count them. Uh, so, so we find here that the, the whole church is to be involved here in the receiving of members and then also the excluding of members. The church also uh, has the collective responsibility to manage its own financial affairs. Okay. Uh, we find, for instance, times that were uh, set up for collections. Um, and uh, we find that some of the churches did more, some of the churches did less, and uh, you know, and this was their prerogative. You know, they they could they could uh, they could they could choose how their money was spent and used. Um, I say also the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. 
in Christ renders a clergy class not only unnecessary, uh, but deleterious to the New Testament order. Okay? It suggests, for instance, that we would be under the law if, in fact, we have to go to these supreme monarchs of the church in order to receive absolution. Okay, It's not how it works in Baptist life. It's not how it works biblically, right? Okay. It's not as though that elder has some sort of intrinsic authority and, and power to forgive sins. Okay. Rather, that's something we go directly to God with. Okay. And so this idea of a clergy class, uh, now sometimes we still talk about the officers of the church and particularly the pastors as clergy. Uh, there's there's a sense in which we probably should shy away from clergy laity distinctions as though there is some sort of a class of super Christians and a class of ordinary Christians. Okay, uh, that's not what we have with the officers of the church. They're 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 ordinary Christians like you and me. Uh, they have some have some authority within the life of the church, but it's delegated to them by the church and can be, and that authority can be taken away in a moment. Well, probably not in a moment. You have to get the whole church together, but you, you know what I mean. Okay. So by virtue of the priesthood, all members of the New Testament people of God being regenerate are afforded the competency, the privilege, the right to contribute to the governance of the church. And by virtue of this priesthood, each person is individually accountable to God. But more to the point, he's also responsibility, responsible for the health of the faith community of which he is a part. And this responsibility cannot ever be delegated entirely to the eldership of the church. Now, they are certainly charged, Ephesians says, sort of, facilitating it, managing it, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. That's their task. But they don't actually do it all, right? They equip the totality of the saints to to accomplish this task because we are all priests of God and we can all represent one another to God in prayer and, uh, and then be involved in the discipleship process here, okay? So the, so you should never think of the... Uh, of of these responsibilities okay you know somebody sinned in the church i gotta go tell the pastor well i mean it may become necessary that that happened but no somebody sins in the church what does matthew tell you to do you're competent to do that yourself you know it's one of the jay adams for instance you know wrote that book competent to counsel uh sort of to address this issue it's it's not just that you know, you go to the pastor for counseling, but that we're all competent to counsel because we're regenerate. Uh, we're all believers with, with a relationship with God. We are all priests, uh, individually for ourselves. And so we can, and, and so, so the idea that we can, uh, we can be all involved in the discipleship process is, 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 is part and parcel of Baptist polity. The, the, it's not like the elders have to do it all. And we're going to see here that that's part of the problem with elder rule. Uh, they actually take away responsibilities from the church as a whole, assume them to themselves. And what ends up happening is that the, the church as a, as a whole becomes observers rather than participants in the life of the church. And it's very important uh, that we not do that. So practically... Involving the congregation in decisions gives a voice to all believers, which is possible because in Baptist polity, they're all believers, right? They're not, they're, all members are believers. Generates unity, fosters ownership of the church and its ministries and encourages mutual participation and edification. The more you can get everyone involved, the more the church functions like a church. Like a community, you know. I remember very first day of the uh, this class, we talked what what is a church, and perhaps the best single word definition that we can give it is is the community. Okay, and that means it's communal. Everybody's participating in the community. Okay, 
Now, there's some who have objected to congregationalism over the years, and some some objections carry more weight than others. Perhaps you you've heard them, uh, but uh, let's 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 walk through a few of these and see if we can answer some of them. Number one, congregational churches often lose sight of the fact that the church is not a democracy, but a I, what I say here is a democratic republic of sorts complete with a regulative principle of scripture and officers who rule with intrinsic authority. Okay. And it's possible that, uh, you know, you, you can, you can have churches that have become so democratic that the leaders don't do any leading uh, because the congregation has taken all authority to themselves and will not give it up. Okay, and so they won't allow the pastor to be the pastor. Um, and so oftentimes in such churches, there's, there's an endless bickering over what, you know, what color is the carpet going to be and, and, and such like that. And it's possible that that could happen in congregational policy. It's a risk, but it's not something that's necessary. Second objection, membership matters are handled much more effectively, discreetly, and without threat of litigation when they're conducted in committee rather than in public tribunals. This is one that's very commonly given, and, and particularly those of you who are non-confrontational folk, and uh, probably at least half of you are in that category. You know, you, you, you don't like confrontation. Actually, if you do like confrontation, you've got a problem, but, but, but some of you are particularly averse to to confrontation. You don't like that. You just as soon not have any. If there has to be confrontation done, let it be done in closed doors, uh, behind closed doors with as few people as possible. And you say, well, that, that's more discreet. It can perhaps be more effective because, you know, you know, you get, you get the whole church staring down at you. That can be um, and of course, there's always the threat of litigation with congregational polity. You make public, you know, this person committed a sin, a terrible sin, and he needs to be excluded. That person can say, I'm going to sue you uh, because that was made public. It, it, it seems like congregational polity is unwieldy. Okay. Furthermore, the biblical injunctions to leave restoration to those who are spiritual, you know, those, you know, if someone's caught in a fault, those of you who are spiritual, restore him. And some have suggested, ah, that only spiritual people should be involved in that. But the fact is, we're all supposed to be spiritual, right? Spirit, spiritual means you're a believer. Those of you who are believers need to restore this individual. Uh, two or three are sometimes appointed. Why can't we just keep it at two or three? Why do we have to involve the whole church? Well, the answer is that private action may be safer. It may be more discreet. But God has designed the due process of church discipline um, to involve the steps that we talked about these last steps for, and, and for that process to become public for the sake of those both within and those without, right? Uh, so that, you know, when, when the individual is brought up for charges, we can all be sobered by that. And convinced that that's not something, I don't want my name to be dragged in before the church like that. I'm going to avoid sinning because the, for that reason. And also for those outside, they see that we're handling the problem. We're not just sweeping it under the rug or taking care of it in a, in a closed meeting and then whisking the problem away. We're dealing with it. We're dealing with it publicly. And that's exactly what God intends for us to do, both for our sake and for those who are outside. I, I, I remember, you know, I, I grew up in a church. I grew up in a church that didn't practice discipline very often. Um, only in the very, only under really bad sins. And I can remember to this day, you know, Mr. Sell, and it was his name. And, uh, and he was brought up for doing just these terrible things with his family. It, it, it was, and I remember sitting there and, I was listening to every word that was being said. And I, as a child, I, I don't know how old I was, maybe third, fourth grade. And I remember thinking, wow, they really take sin seriously here. And I don't ever want to be somebody like that. 
And it, it was, it was formative for me as a child to see that process happen. And, uh, it was a good experience. And I think it's, it, that's, that's what's, what's the purpose. That's part of the purpose of church discipline so that those who are gathered will take note. You know, you know, you, you rebuke a person so that people will take note and, and not engage in the same kinds of sin. So yes, it may be safer. It may be more discreet. It may be less confrontational, but God in his wisdom has asked, has determined that it's better for that person, for the church, and for those outside the church, uh, that it be uh, taken care of in a congregational way. Okay. Third objection. New Testament places great emphasis on the contributions of elders and overseers and the mature. That's true, but that doesn't take away from the fact that God expects the whole congregation to participate in its own government as well. Then practically speaking, Autonomous congregationalism is inefficient, plagued by redundancy, sometimes ill-equipped to accomplish great things for God. Ministerial education, foreign missions, and, and that, that can be true. Sometimes that's by design. You know, if ever reading the Federalist Papers, uh, that, that they actually made the government of the U.S. of A. with the House of Representatives and the Senate and all of the procedures that are involved actually made it very difficult to get legislation through so that it would be you know combed over with a fine-tooth comb and 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 rendered careful uh with with many many eyes upon it okay and so sometimes government is intended to be inefficient for that purpose and uh, that's that's sometimes i think the case with with congregational government sometimes efficiency is the enemy of participation Right. You know, if, 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 if it just, everything just smoothly goes through, it's like, okay, I didn't, I didn't participate. I wasn't part of that. It was, it was just done. And then also congregationalism uh, doesn't prohibit us uh, from connectionalism. You know, we, we can connect with other believers, other churches and such. Uh, what it, pre- what it prevents though is top heavy kind of connections uh, of that nature. So congregationalism is our first principle here uh, under uh, the congregational principle in, in Baptist polity. Any questions on congregationalism? Okay. Let's move then to the second, and I think a subsidiary point, and that's the principle of autonomy, uh, sometimes called independence. So sometimes you'll, you'll hear it in an independent Baptist church, Okay. Um, and so this is what we mean by the term autonomy. Now that's been abused as we've, as you've no doubt known. At the same time, I think there is something here that we don't want to lose, uh, just because this independence has been abused by some. Okay. So let's talk about it first. What is it not? And then what it is. The autonomy of the local church, again, doesn't mean that the church can disregard the regulation of the scriptures. Again. Okay. It's not as though that our autonomy means that no one can speak to us, including God himself. It just means that no one outside the assembly may come and tell us how we need to do church. Okay. It does not mean, secondly, that churches are necessarily isolated from one another or prohibited from voluntary cooperation, joint projects. In fact, we're going to talk about some of those things as we work our way through. I think it's very important that churches work together for ministerial education, for, for missions work, uh, for any number of, of projects. You know, you know, you, you have several churches band together to have some sort of a men's activity or, or whatever the case may be. Okay. Uh, that autonomy doesn't mean that you can't cooperate with other churches. It just means that no one outside the church can tell the church this is what you must do. Okay, that's that's what we mean by uh, a principle of autonomy. It also does not mean, third bullet point, that elders of like-minded assemblies can't meet to offer and receive mutual advice, share expertise, make mutual resolutions, resolve disputes, even censure heterodox persons and assemblies. Uh, sometimes those are informal, sometimes they're formal. 
Um, I make a point every week. I, I meet with pastors and we talk. It's they're they're just professional lunches uh, where we you know we we bump ideas off of each other. We talk to each other about sermons, ideas, the the state of the church, problems within the church. I mean, COVID's been huge, right? You know, because. COVID has presented an enormous number of challenges to churches over the years. So, so we, we get together and it informally and then formally sometimes, you know, we actually have conferences and such, you know, pastors conferences or people get together and we mutually encourage one another, talk about issues within the life of the church. Sometimes even, uh, there's, there's occasions where elders from multiple churches will get together. Uh, to resolve some sort of a discipline issue that has, has, has expanded beyond the scope of a single church. Okay. Um, and, and so, and even sometimes that you, they'll, they'll make some sort of formal, you know, resolutions along the way. You know, we're collectively deciding, you know, that this is probably not a good idea or this is a good idea and we need to pursue it, you know. Uh, so, so it does not mean uh, autonomy does not mean that people can't work together. Churches can't work together or church leaders can't work together or pastors can't work together. It's just that each church is independent of the others in terms of it's, uh, of their, their, their doing church. Okay. So here's what the L- London Baptist confession. If there's anything that's, you know, Purely Baptist would be the London Baptist Confession, right? Although the particular congregations be distinct and several bodies, everyone a compact and knit city within itself, yet they are all to walk by one rule of truth. So also they might by all means convenient are to have the counsel and help of one another, if necessary require it as members of one body and the common faith under Christ as their head. So, so yes, each church is a compact and knit city within itself, but that doesn't mean those churches cannot cooperate with one another. And I think sometimes that's what ha- what has happened in in independent churches uh, is the idea of, of isolated churches, and that's not what we mean at all when we talk about independent churches. Independent and isolated do not have to go together. Um, also, we say here that uh, the 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 uh, uh, so positively, the autonomy of the local church does mean that individuals' assemblies answer necessarily to no norming authority external to themselves in matters of faith, practice, resource stewardship, etc. Okay. So how do we defend this? Well, the fact that the local church collectively is given the responsibilities and authority detailed above leaves no need or place for additional authority. And in fact, this is really the, the, the best argument. Um, the rest are simply answers to objections, really. Uh, the church is given the responsibility to do church. Peter is given the keys, but, and, and then the apostles, the whole apostle, apostolic band is given them. But once the apostolic Aegis wears off once the apostles die. Who carries the the authority of the apostle? Individual churches, right? So, so for instance, in the church discipline passage, who has the authority to bind and loose? The church, the whole gathered church. You know, you, you don't have to submit to some sort of bishop or pope or someone out there who gives you the okay for your church to do something. The church by itself is equipped to do those things. Okay. Um, the church council in Acts 15 is tempered by the fact that it was temporary, corrected internal conflict within the Jerusalem assembly and ec- the apostles exercised oversight and the decisions were attributed to the whole church. And, you know, after it was all done, uh, they, they, the terms of the, of the, of the council's decision were, were very carefully made. Remember, remember what happens here? You know, they get together to try and decide whether the church needs to, uh, observe these principles of the Old Testament, you know, circumcision particularly, uh, in the New Testament church. And it was a big issue. I, I, I sometimes joke that, you know, they, 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 they met together to decide whether or not they were going to be dispensationalists or not. 
and they decided they were. Um, and so, so, uh, what they, they get together. This is a temporary thing. It's, it's not as though this is some sort of a permanent body. Okay. There's a temporary collection of individuals. They come together. They resolve this situation. Apostles over, overseeing it. And then it says that the whole church agreed to the decision. So the, the whole Jerusalem church and apparently collectively all the churches agree to this. And then James comes and announces these are the findings of the council. You don't have to engage in these, in these, in the, in the mosaic restrictions, but he says, but we would prefer if you didn't engage in, you know, eating uncooked meat, you know, um, and a couple of other things that, that certain people found particularly scandalous, but it's, but it's given in the terms of a recommendation. Okay. Uh, because, because, because of the, because of the nature of that. Okay. Excluding the five uses of the term in reference to an ethnic assembly, the majority of the 109 uses of this term church assembly community are addressed to local churches uh, and uh, only a few reference the whole church. So individual churches disparately, separately are given responsibilities, not the rarely do we find instruction given to the universal church. Okay. It's to individual churches. Now the churches work together in New Testament times is very clear, but whether that this amounted to formal denominations is not, it does not appear that there are denominations in the New Testament period. Okay. Um, before we look at a few objections, the question is, so, so to what degree are we able to connect with one another? How, how, how can churches work together? And, uh, um, I say there's a lot of different connectional models that are practiced by church at Baptist today. Some are which, of which I think are more biblical than others. So, so how, how, how do churches sometimes work together? Well, councils, temporary organizations convene to counsel or advise local churches. We all are the one that we're most familiar with, of course, is an ordination council. Okay. So a, a church, uh, invokes the aid of a number of pastors, seminary profs, experts on, on, on theology. Can you come and help us decide whether this guy we're considering for the pastor is qualified? And so what happens? They call this council. It's a temporary thing. In fact, there's usually very careful, uh, things that are, that are worked into the organization so that everybody recognizes this is temporary. This is a one-time thing. They come together. They don't actually tell the church whether or not to accept this person. They don't ordain anybody. They just advise the church. We think this person is qualified or contrarily. We don't think he's qualified. And then they disband, never to convene again. Okay. So that's a council. And this is a very appropriate thing. We find councils in uh, the Christian scriptures. Sometimes we find other forms of councils as well. There are recognition councils. Um, recognition councils are, are, are councils that are uh, convened when a church is being planted. Uh, so that a number of pastors can come together to look over the founding documents of the church to make sure that everything's in order. Because uh, you, you don't want to set up a church in such a way that you have to go and change stuff afterwards. And so these recognition councils would come together to examine the, the, uh, the documents of a, of a, of a fledgling church. Moving up the, uh, the ladder here, we move to fellowships. Fellowships. These are informal. Voluntary organizations of like-minded pastors who band together for mutual edification, but exercise no authority over the churches represented. You know, fundamental Baptist fellowship, independent fellowship of, uh, Baptists of North America, uh, Ohio Bible fellowship. These are, these are, these are, uh, these are fellowships of pastors. They come together once or twice a year, perhaps even, you know, in some cases have a, have a, have some, you know, some 
a, a, a magazine or something that they publish for their mutual edification, uh, you know, you know, Facebook lists that they can get together and have conversations. There's nothing wrong with this. So this is a, a perfectly appropriate thing to do. As we move on, uh, we were going to actually see some of these, these connections between the churches actually start to, uh, to, uh, to, to, uh, to press against the congregational principle or autonomy. The associations involve more structured, but still voluntary memberships of local church messengers, usually elders, but sometimes whole churches. They meet together uh, regularly for assemblies, convene for mutual fellowship again in action. They can't dictate the actions of each other, but they do sometimes co-op, uh, facilitate cooperative initiatives. So these associations are usually gathered together in order to do something. Uh, it may be so that we can have, we can collectively own a camp, or perhaps we can collectively send missionaries to a specific country. We can have a, a mission agency, or, or we can perhaps start a, start a, a school for ministerial training. Okay. And so these, these associations, uh, will then get band together in order to do stuff. Um, they can't make any church act a certain way. However, they can say to a church, you know, you don't belong here. We're not going to tell you what you can or can't do, uh, but we can exclude you from the association now. So there's, again, so, so a little bit of push on the principle of autonomy. We also have ad hoc parachurch organizations, perhaps the most frustrating feature of connection. These often provide valuable services to the church, Bible colleges, interchurch Bible studies, Bible counseling centers, independent mission agencies, camps, publishing houses. These, these often operate not so much under the aegis of multiple churches, but they're independent animals of themselves. And because they sometimes become powerful, they become hubs of authority within the church. Okay, so, you know, a, a large Christian university or a seminary can can actually, or a Bible college can actually start to, you know, inform and impose itself on surrounding churches. Okay, and there's really no authority over them. They're, they're just sort of out there. They're ad hoc. Uh, there's, there's no, uh, churches minding them, making sure that they are, uh, following all the rules. And so oftentimes we find heresies and heterodoxies entering the church by means of these because there's, there's no oversight. There's no, there's no ecclesiastical oversight over these. Even more, uh, restrictive of autonomy are conventions and conferences. Involve the membership not only of messengers, but of churches. Technically, they're still voluntary, but the introduction of fees and dues in return for services creates a symbiosis of church and convention that can practically threaten the autonomy of local churches. I think particularly the Southern Baptist Convention. In order to be a participant in that, you, you, you are expected to pay certain dues and pay a certain amount to the, uh, to their, to their mission agency. Okay. And you don't really have any say over what's going on in that mission agency, but you have to give money to it. If you're going to be a member in good standing of this convention. And, and so what ends up happening is the churches start to lose their autonomy. They don't, they don't get to decide who their missionaries are per se. They just have these missionaries that are out there and they give money to them. Okay. Now I, 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 I'm, I'm being a little bit careless in how I put that because in the Southern Baptist convention, you, a church can have individual missionaries, but there's also this expectation that they give to the pot, right? Denominations are even more restrictive here of autonomy. Uh, they not, they go beyond just, you know, ordering churches to do certain things, but actually extend to ownership and oversight over the polity, missions, and even resources of local churches within their purview. Okay, Very few Baptists will consider the Baptist faith a denomination for that reason, because there is no collective ownership. Like, for instance, if 
you know, if, if, a, if a, for instance, a, a Roman Catholic church, you know, maybe a local Roman Catholic church has some sort of a Protestant revival take place inside of its walls and everybody converts in that church. They can't just decide, you know, we're just going to break away from the Roman Catholic church and, and make this, you know, a Baptist church now. They can't do that because the Roman Catholic megalopolis owns that building. <laughs> Though that, that church doesn't own anything. Uh, it, it's, it's the, it's the denomination that owns all that. And so they would, if they if they want to preserve their identity, they're just going to have to walk away and buy their own building now. Okay. So the conclusion is that formal cooperation between churches and pastors is legitimate to the degree that autonomy is preserved. Okay. So we've got to preserve autonomy and to the degree that those cooperatives threaten autonomy, they become, I think, biblically illegitimate. Two objections, and then I'll open it up for any questions for the night. Objections to the principle of autonomy. A, apart from formal organization, through presbyteries, conventions, etc., the work of missions and ministerial education defaults to powerful parachurch organizations that are not accountable to the churches that support them. And that's true. That's happened. Uh, It doesn't have to happen. Right. It doesn't have to happen. Uh, further, the denomination model has not done any better job in preserving the orthodoxy of its churches uh, than the autonomous uh, approach has either. Second objection is that autonomy can lead to isolation, disunity and doctrinal aberration. Yeah, it can. It can. Does it have to? No. As we've seen, there can be a lot of cooperation that is ongoing um, and uh, and a lot of checks and balances that can take place uh, within Baptist cooperations, uh, councils and such, uh, to make sure that the uh, the whole voice of the church comes to bear uh, on, on what the individual churches are doing. Okay, so that's the principle of autonomy that we added to the principle of congregational, the, the congregational principle. Any questions on this? This is sort of our foundation uh, for Baptist polity. Any questions on either of these issues? So the Southern Baptist Convention, as at one point they started sort of, I guess we would say, strain towards the liberal. Mm-hmm. Churches could withdraw at that point, right? Yes. In a, in, a, in, a, in a convention, yes, you can. But it can get tricky because... Because the, the, the more interconnected the church is with the denomination, the harder it is to withdraw. Because you, yeah, I mean, you, you don't want to abandon certain initiatives and responsibilities that you forged within the, within the convention. And so yes, they can. In fact, they can be ordered out. At the same time, it just becomes a little more cumbersome, uh, within a convention model. Someone I know, their church moved to that convention, and they just went into a new building. And I believe that there was a group from the convention where funds and laborers came in and helped building projects, even. Right, and that's and that's one of the strengths of a convention model. The the it the more networking happens, the the more you can you can you can do those larger projects, and that's that's true. Um, at the same time. What that means is, you know, large groups of churches have to contribute to a pot that then is sort of supervised by super officials of the convention. And the churches say in the, in the operations of the whole convention is rather muted. That's, that's, that's the disadvantage of a, of a convention. So it's like Republican versus Democrat. One's a <laughs> government and one's a local government. More. Having having lived down south, being in the Navy in Jacksonville, Florida, and and uh, being in in uh, a, a Southern Baptist church for a while, and independent, and then going to Tennessee Temple, that was the big thing in the South. I think during the forties and fifties were big generations, big decades of of. Uh, Moving out, a lot of Southern Baptist churches became independent uh, when they 
when they went out of the Southern Baptist Convention. So uh, that was that was yeah that was a big thing. Now I don't know all the history, but that's, I think that was a big thing. Yeah, yeah. The Baptists didn't. The, the Southern Baptists didn't really have a fundamentalist modernist controversy in, in in terms of a crisis event where a big block of people left out. It, it, it was a it was sort of a trickle effect over yeah. decades, and so you yeah. don't you don't have quite the same thing that we have up north. The Northern Baptist Convention just actually broke in two, right? And the GARBC pulls out in they, they in the north it was more waves, whereas in the south it was more of a trickling out of of churches. Yeah. Okay. Other thoughts, questions about that. Oh yeah, in, in uh, Acts chapter ten, the uh, the 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 people there in Cornelius's house had the temerity to get saved before the first verse of uh, uh, for the first verse of the invitation was given. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so next week we will start talking about the officers of the church. So we're going to talk, we know about pastors and deacons, uh, but there's other, but there's other, uh, there's other uh, offices that are mentioned in the scripture. And we want to talk a little bit about them. What happened to the apostles? What happened to the prophets? Who are the evangelists? You know, so we'll talk about some of these and actually some other historical uh, uh options here that have been and and then we're going to we're going to examine each one and try and come up with the biblical offices of of the uh of the local church okay so we'll see you next week